Hi, I'm Margie and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the Desert Island. First up, thank you for choosing to listen to Desert Island Dishes. I know that sounded a bit like the announcement you get on an airline, but genuinely, thank you for listening. And if you are enjoying Desert Island Dishes, can I ask you just to spare 30 seconds to leave us a five-star review on iTunes, as it really does make the world of difference and helps me to keep bringing the podcast to you every week. Today's guest is every bit as lovely as you think he might be. So without further ado, here is today's episode. My guest today is Donal Skian. Donal is blogger turned TV chef, cookbook author and general star of the food scene. He has written no less than eight cookbooks, has nearly 250,000 followers on Instagram, 750,000 on his YouTube channel and has done countless TV shows. He is known for his simple, no-nonsense approach to home cooking and is adamant he is a cook rather than a chef. Even with the release of his first cookbook way back when, he was dubbed Ireland's answer to Jamie Oliver. Welcome, Donal. Thank you very much. So let's talk a bit about that. What to you is the distinction between a chef and a cook? I think, I mean, there's so much of this, you know, and certainly when I started out my career, you know, I think there was a little bit of confusion that I was trying to pretend to be a chef, but, oh. you know, I'm a food writer. That's, that's what my job is. And, um, you know, and I think my job is very specific because I'm writing recipes for home cooks and they need to be functional ones that most families can make at the drop of a hat when you come in the door from work or for school or whatever it is. And I think, you know, I think there is a distinction, you know, I think my job certainly is based around that and ra- rather than trying to plate up beautiful Michelin star restaurant dishes in, in a restaurant, which is not what I could ever do because, you know, there's fantastically talented people who do that so wonderfully. And I think they're very different, you know, they're very different roles and they're very different jobs. And and I think that distinction is is somewhat important because, you know, I think if you're going to buy a book from someone um, who's writing recipes, you know, that are that are lovely kind of um, you know, dedication to seasonality and things like that. And that, that's fine. And that is a lovely thing. But I think you can do the same within, you know, a, a realm that is, is accessible to someone who's cooking at home. And so, you know, from the get go from, I mean, in my first cookbook, the aim has always been to create simple recipes that people can do at home and, and really to kind of give them the playbook that, you know, you, you can, you know, can adapt them and you can uh, play around with them a little bit. But to give people confidence is the end game for me is, is to give people confidence in the kitchen. Yeah. Well, you definitely achieve that. I thought it was in, really interesting because I think it's generally thought that men are chefs and women tend to claim the title of cook, which is probably a very sexist thing to say, but I thought it was interesting and yeah, I liked that that's how you described yeah, it. Yeah, and it's funny because you, you definitely see that. And certainly when I started, like, I mean, Nigella Lawson, certainly not a, you know, certainly not a chef by no. any means, but highly successful at providing recipes for people who are cooking at home. And and I think that's, that kind of, it, it is funny, you know, as a, as a male in that industry as well, like you were expected to be a chef rather than yeah, someone. Yeah, it's weird, isn't writing. it? But anyway, look, I think we're, we're well past all of that yes. in this world and day and age. So it's a good thing. Definitely. So you are now an undisputed star of the food world, but originally, is it right that you started out in music, even playing the support act to the pussy cat dolls at the O2. Yes, that was uh, <laughs> was a brief foray into the music industry. Thankfully, I took uh, early retirement. Um, but that's a very <laughs> successful foray. 
<laughs> it was. Yeah, it was great. I mean, we had we had uh, two, maybe a year and a half, two years of. I mean, in true pop terms, because this is the way it goes. You get chewed, taken in, chewed up, and eaten out, and and that's all. It all happens very quickly. But um, we had a, we had a great fun doing it, and it was actually it was a, I was in the band around the time I had just started a food blog, so that okay. was kind of how um, it all the timeline was. So um, I was very much, and actually I was in the midst of writing the first cookbook at the time I was in the band. So I was only twenty one or twenty two at the time, so it was very much you know I didn't know what way things were going. But I always, I mean, food has always been the passion. So thankfully, I was doing it kind of in tandem, and you know, one was always going to win out. I certainly was maybe uh, not the most talented singer in the band, so I think. Food was always uh, was always there. Thankfully, as something that I, I could go to. I think you're too modest. But <laughs> I, listen, I chose the right career path. <laughs> I believe that your parents have been in the food business for over thirty years, and that your grandpa had a fruit and vegetable business. So. I wondered, was it one of those things that growing up, you just knew food was going to be your thing? I think absolutely. But I think there's a, that moment where you're like, oh, no, I'm never going to. Yeah. <laughs> this is an absolute. And then, of course, you know, it turns around that you're, you're <laughs> because it's what you grow up with. You learn by osmosis and there's an element where, you know, it, it's, it was always going to be the case. And um, and it, it's a beautiful thing as well, because, you know, you, you draw on these kind of these memories that you have of your childhood and and the recipes that we would have grown up with and and certainly the ingredients and the experiences and things that you know that that were just part of what childhood for me was but yeah it's it's a big thing I mean my mom and dad are still so we're actually we're heading to Italy uh, next week and we're going to Puglia and my my mom hasn't been and so I'm dying to show her around because I've I've traveled a bit there for to some of the TV shows we've done and you know, I just love that we have that shared passion for something like that. And it's a, it's a really lovely bond to have yeah. even after all these years and stuff. Amazing. Okay, let's pause there and talk about the first desert island dish. And that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. Mm-hmm. The first, I mean, as I said, like the, you know, these are the sorts of dishes that I grew up with. And, you know, obviously coming from Ireland, there's quite a few traditional Irish recipes. And, you know, being honest, my mom wasn't always, she, she didn't just solely cook traditional Irish recipes, yeah. but... <laughs> You know, she was spaghetti bolognese, the usual kind of family fare. But one dish that I always kind of remember as as a real kind of pinnacle of my childhood was a traditional Irish stew. Ooh. You know, a really good one um, that would have been made kind of while we were sitting around the, the kitchen table doing our homework and my mom would be pottering away in the kitchen. And I always remember it being made on those lovely kind of dark evenings when it's just getting that bit cold. And, you know, with something like a stew that needs to kind of cook away for, you know, up to an hour it steams up all the windows and I just remember that as being a really kind of cozy moment in in my childhood and and that's why that is the dish of my childhood it's it's um just so easy I used to hate the potatoes in it though oh really yeah <laughs> which is which I mean a lot of Irish purists will, will be very upset by but I've come around to them so uh, yeah I, I, thank goodness I know well actually in my so my mom doesn't necessarily approve of this but my in my Irish stew she would have just put the the lamb the carrots um and everything in and the potatoes, obviously, but I finished mine off with kind of discs of like one centimetre rounds of the potato. And I top, Ooh. I make this kind of like lovely topping with a little butter over the top. And it gives you this gorgeous kind of golden crust on, on the top, which is which is my way of enjoying the potatoes a little bit better in the Irish stew. Yeah, that oh, sounds delicious. <laughs> yeah. A good twist, I think. Yeah. So growing up in Ireland, I mean, what an amazing place in terms of the produce. So many amazing producers creating the most delicious food. And it's home of the slow food movement, isn't it? Well, one of the homes, yes, for sure. I mean, I think it's Italy would have been the, the main yeah. place. But I mean, Ireland has some really passionate slow food foodies as well. What's interesting about that is that 
you know, I don't necessarily remember Ireland growing up as being that foodie at all. Oh, really? You know, I think you really had to source it. And now, I mean, now it's a celebration of food. You know, yeah. now, like I would say in the last 20 years, we have just had this kind of huge uh, influx of uh, of interest into into Irish food. And um, I, and I think, sorry, I, I, you know, I think it has always existed. And, you know, there's fantastic, you know, heroes of Irish food like Doreen Allen and, you know, a lot of the, the, the producers who have been doing it for many years. But I think it's almost been made cool in a way. And, yeah. and, and that's not necessarily a negative thing. I think it's, it's a very much a positive thing. And I think moreover, I mean, certainly the restaurants I would have grown up going to, uh, you know, as a kid, certainly, you know, seasonality was not part of the menu. It was, yeah. you know, ma- and even if you went to a fancy place, it was all French recipes and, you know, the, those high end kind of, uh, you know, just not very attainable sort of recipes. And whereas now you have, you, you can see where your lamb has come from. You can see where the meat is produced. You can see the cheeses there. And, and it's, that menus and restaurants in Ireland are celebrating that. So it's a fantastic thing. And, uh, you know, and we are just so spoiled because we are a very unique place because it's an island with, you know, only 4 million in, in the, in the region. And so I love that, you know, you, you have a really good sense of where the food's coming from and you have fantastically passionate people who are, who are singing the praises of, of Irish food and, and sharing it with the world. Yes. But you have to come to Ireland to eat the best of it. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, I wondered, and you're living in LA at the moment. So how does that compare sort of on the food front? Well, it's hard to get traditional Irish food in LA (laughs) unless I cook it myself. And even then it doesn't really taste the same as back home, but. But no, um, food-wise, LA is just completely, um, I, I was going to say miles apart, but at the same time, you know, I was only back, I'm back in Dublin at the moment and um, there's a lot of ingredients that I was kind of going, oh, you'd never get that at home. And all of a sudden, you know, there's kombucha and there's a fantastic producer who makes uh, peanut ryu, which is Ooh. this like gorgeous Japanese kind of condiment and you know, it's th- these things where I'm actually now going home to Dublin and being inspired by yeah. the ingredients, the producers that are that are creating things. But LA is fantastic from a food point of view. And what's lovely about it is that you can jump into different cuisines 15 minutes away on, and it's all on your doorstep. And, you know, I have K-Town down the road. There's a really great Mexican uh, taco truck that rolls up into our, into our neighborhood, which I can walk down to. Um, so we're very much spoilt in terms of food. And I, I think it was probably one of the main catalysts for us moving oh, really? beyond the climate and yeah. beyond you know, <laughs> career stuff but food wise it's just fab yeah, yeah. career whatever yeah. it's the food <laughs> I'm there for food <laughs> the second desert island dish is the first dish that you learned to cook yes so I mean I think funny enough I mean mentioning you know the sort of things that you would have eaten in restaurants and there was that kind of French influence stuff but we uh, I, I had an au pair growing up and um, she was French and when I was kind of about 12 she, I went over to stay with her and she just had a baby. And so I was kind of helping out and doing, doing, it was a trade off there going on all that time. She, she kind of would have introduced us to, you know, classic things like a quiche or crepes and things like that. So I always, I mean, I was always cooking, you know, younger than that, but I do remember kind of, you know, cooking a full meal for my whole family. And it was, you know, that, that whole process of making a quiche. Cause there's so much, a quiche is a perfect example of yeah. a, a fully rounded recipe where you're making, you're learning how to make pastry, you're blind baking it, you're creating, you know, you're frying in a frying pan or you're, you know, or whatever the ingredients might, might, may be. So I, I think that that was probably my most, my, my memory of one of the first things, but certainly crepes. I mean, Pancake Tuesday was, was a big thing in our house. So uh, pancakes were probably the first yeah. thing. I'd love to say they were more interesting than that. But no, those are, those, are, those are great answers. And I very much am in favour of the idea that um, Pancake Tuesday should be a thing all year round. Absolutely. Like, 
actually. Why not? And my, my wife is Swedish and um, in Sweden, Pancake Tuesday is called Fat Tuesday, oh. which I think is the far is far more appropriate a name for it than, uh, than Shrove Tuesday. Or yeah, Pancake that Tuesday. probably is more appropriate in my house too. Right. Um, let's go back to the beginning because you started a blog in the summer of 2007 and it was called The Good Mood Food Blog. And incidentally, it's still up there for all your fans. I had a nosy around Did last you? night. It's not yep. meant to be. Oh, well. <laughs> How did you find it? I just Googled it. Oh my goodness, I better have a Google myself. <laughs> but you were an early adopter of blogging. And as you say, it stemmed from a mixture of boredom and a love of food, which seems as good a place as any to start from. Mm. Well, the boredom came from the job I was doing at the time. I was working in um, a TV station where I had to write showbiz gossip segments. And uh, I mean, I love showbiz gossip as much as the next person, but to do it day in, day out, I was losing my mind. And um, at the time, food blogs were just kind of at the infancy of kicking off. And Matt Bites, uh, Deb Perlman from Smitten Kitchen, Pioneer Woman were the kind of the big food bloggers at the time. And um, I was obsessed by them. And I, I just loved the, the um, instant nature of food blogs and that, you know, you, were, could, you, would, could, you could cook something on the weekend and photograph it and talk about it and, and give a, also be able to give yourself a voice in, in a very kind of, at the time, it was very hard to get a foothold in, you know, the TV world or the book world or whatever it is. So food blogs just gave a completely different kind of outlet that wasn't, that hadn't existed before. And, you know, there was, in some ways, I think, you know, a lot of people kind of got a, a lot of stick about food blogging and because there was so many of them at one point but I think the cream always rises to the top and and I think you know you you, uh, you follow those people who are who are consistent and passionate and and those things so I started off the basis of of that and I was uh, I had been given a, a camera for the first time for my 21st birthday and I hadn't picked it up once and the first <laughs> picture I had took uh, was a picture of the pizza we had made over the ho- homemade pizza that I'd made in the first apartment we'd moved into myself and my wife then girlfriend that was kind of how how it grew, and I was in Ireland. I was one of the first few, and possibly in the UK, one of the few who um, who was putting photographs alongside the okay. recipes. So it was quite unusual to kind of put like high endish images that you were creating yourself, and they certainly weren't high endish at the start. <laughs> they were. They were. I was learning. I learned my craft through through food blogging. But I would. I actually do say that you know I credit the skill of food photography as, some, as something that's really given me a start in, in this whole world of food and the fact that you were able to kind of photograph the food in a way that, you know, made it as, as attractive as the recipes should, you know, yeah. taste was always, you know, is always a, a, you know, a skill to have in the back pocket. Yeah, I think that's really impressive because in at a time when all you're confronted with is professional magazines and cookery books, I think it's kind of impressive at age 21 to sort of take that on yourself and provide an alternative I think that's amazing well it certainly wasn't the part of the (laughs) there was no plan behind it I was just doing it because I really enjoyed it and at the time like I said we just moved out to our first apartment and I growing up I was always I was always writing down recipes in my books and you know I actually I think probably the the first that pizza recipe I put up was probably one that I'd been cooking since I was about eight years of age like it was something that was always part of, you know, my, my repertoire as a kid. And, you know, I, we used to do little pizza parties and things like that. But, but I think that whole idea of, you know, starting something and being able to share is, is a lovely thing. But it certainly wasn't, there was no plan when I first started at all. Well, yeah. So, so tell us, because you've transitioned from being a blogger, you've now moved well into the traditional media. You've done eight cookbooks. You've done countless TV shows. But how did that first book come about? How did you go from, 
writing on your blog and taking these photos to actually having a book? Yeah, well, it's it. I mean, I think at the time people thought it happened very quickly, but it, it did take time. You know, I think I started the food blog in 2007 and the first... I think I remember what the book or the TV series came first. No, sorry, the the book came first. So it was about 2009 by the time the book rolled around. Okay. That was, I got paid pittance to write the first one and fo- write and photograph and test <gasps> like one over a hundred recipes for a book. I mean, it, you know, now when you, you know, when you're dealing with a, a UK publisher and there's a budget and there's all these sorts of things. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable that we, we pulled it off, but you do it because you're young and you have the opportunity. And, you know, and I think anyone starting out there, you know, you do it for the passion of it and you do it because, you know, you love what you're doing. And, um, so, you know, I think, I think if I was to go back and start off again, I would absolutely do it, you know, and I think, um, so the book came about from that, from the blog and I got an email from a publisher and, uh, in, in Ireland, a small Irish publisher, and they were asking me, would I like to translate it to a, a TV series? <gasps> oh, sorry, a book. <laughs> would I like to translate the book from, to a TV series? Have I just said, no, I say that. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> I got I got contacted by a, a, a book publisher who was asking me, would I translate the blog into a book? And then once the book was out, I think I was on promoting it um, on a radio show, um, which was a big deal at the time because I hadn't been ever done any radio. But beyond the stuff I'd done with the band, basically I got an email, or I think it was the day or two afterwards, and asking from a TV production company, would I be interested in translating it to a TV show? And so oh. it all happened kind of very serendipitously. And, yeah, um, and really organically as well. It's sort of, yeah, like you're saying, you've got to take the opportunities as they come and put yourself out there. And then that's when things can happen, isn't it? Yeah. There's a podcast that I'm a bit obsessed with called How I Built This. Yes, I love that. Yeah. And one of the questions that they ask all of their guests is, how much of your success do you attribute to timing, being in the right place in the right time? And what percentage is down to just raw talent? Oh, that is a good question. Well, I mean, how have I never heard that on that oh. podcast? <laughs> Maybe I don't listen in long enough. I'm one of those people who, have, who are completely upsetting their uh, their retention rates. Anyway, so I would say it, it's a really difficult one. In my case, I think had I had I started doing what I'm doing now, I, you know, because I was one of the first food bloggers in Ireland, you know, doing what I was doing, that's what gave me the foothold. And because of that, you know, I ended up on TV and then you know, because I was on TV in Ireland, when you come to the UK, you know, you have a track record, you know, you can, you can actually present and host a TV show. So it's an easier gig for someone to say, okay, we'll give this guy guy a chance because he's, he's done it already. And so I think in that way, it's, it was definitely timing from a blog point of view. Um, But I think, you know, you're always going to be that person. And, you know, you, you still have to stand. I mean, I've done 20 television shows and we've written eight books. Like you still have to stand up there and do it. So, I mean, you have to have some element of, you know, talent to be able to put yourself across and, you know, and obviously see it through. But I mean, Timing is only going to get you so far. Timing is only going to, you, you do have to back it up. You know, I think you can have opportunities and chances, but, you know, I, I like to think I'm, I'm good at what I do. And I like to think that, you know, that's probably part of why I got the opportunity I did. But 100%. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, I, I think had it not happened this way, I would have sought other ways to do it. And, uh, you know, that creative kind of love of, of food and, you know, I would have found another outlet. I mean, yeah, interestingly enough, like three or four or five years later, 
YouTube was what took off. And, you know, had I not been a food blogger, maybe I would have been a food YouTuber. And subsequently I've become that. But (laughs) but I think, um, you know, I would have always kind of sought some sort of creative outlet for what I was doing. And had it not been blogging, it would have been something else. Definitely. Right. The third desert island dish. What's the best dish you've ever eaten? Ooh. So... I don't necessarily have a, uh, it changes all the time because yeah. I'm always traveling and there's always something new that I get really excited about and I don't shut up about for about months on end. But anyway, so I thought my answer for this is probably more geared towards the most memorable meal I've had. And that was, we, we filmed this fantastic show called Grandma's Boy. And at the time it was one of a true case of like, it was an opportunity. It, was, it didn't even air in Ireland or the UK. It aired oh. on like Fox International. So okay. it aired across India and Vietnam and Thailand and uh, I, it never, I think only recently Irish, the I, Irish TV has bought it and I think it's aired on the UK subsequently since. But at the time, it was one of those things that came in and I was like, I don't know what this is going to be. But the opportunity was to go and travel across Italy to meet 12 different grandmothers and to cook with them um, and learn their traditional skills. Oh my goodness, sort of the dream. Of course, you say yes to that when it comes in. But one of the most memorable parts of that was we were in um, a fantastic, we were we were visiting this um, organic wine producer, uh, Fontarenza was the wine and um, they're biodyma- bi- biodynamic wine producers and uh, really passionate, two beautiful twins, two Italian twins and they're, they were gorgeous and really just sweet and, and lovely and, and passionate about what they do. But their grand or their mother um, was, was our Nona for that, for that, uh, for that particular episode. And it was just north of Rome, really incredible place, um, Sant'Angelo in Cole. And what was fantastic about it was we ended up, uh, each episode we would end up cooking with the grandmothers and we would do a fantastic big feast. And I would get either the thumbs up or the thumbs down as to whether they approved of what I cooked. That's so stressful. Terrifying, <laughs> terrifying. But actually, I see Jamie Oliver has a, a series at the moment and it brings back lots of great memories of it because it is that kind of no matter what you do an Italian grandmother will have an opinion on how you've done it (laughs) Um, but anyway the the meal we had that particular night we had filmed all during the day and what happened was that it was uh, the town was filled with grandmothers (laughs) I think you know I think the youngest people were 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 gone I don't know where they were gone but there was I was just surrounded by you know women in their kind of late 70s and um, they were all showing me how to make uh, pinchy this pasta, this hand rolled kind of like, it's kind of like a spaghetti, but like a thick spaghetti. And you hand roll it and they were ta- teaching me how to make that. And these donze- donzelle, I think they were called, but basically they're fried pieces of bread dough that you have with prosciutto and red wine. And it was just, oh yeah. my God, out of this world. And we had involtini and, you know, the pinchy was cooked up in a really, you know, gorgeous homemade pasta, uh, homemade tomato sauce. And that for me is just one of the most memorable nights. We were up singing Italian songs with these 78 year old grandmothers till about like one o'clock in the morning, all absolutely off our faces with, uh, with, with this beautiful biodynamic wine. And for forevermore, it will probably be one of my most memorable meals. That sounds absolutely incredible. Yeah. Something tells me you are the kind of person that grandmothers absolutely love. Well, the, so, the show was called Grandma's Boy. So yeah. I felt it was, it was appropriate. I was an appropriate fit for that particular show. <laughs> You've done so many amazing things and traveled to so many brilliant places including a really great series on the Food Network filming in Vietnam can you tell us a bit about that yeah that was great that was a real uh, that was a real fantastic project to work on because I had been to Vietnam probably one of my first kind of trips both myself and uh, my wife we had gone on because you know when you travel when you're young you you kind of you do all the the dodgy things of getting on trains with them someone who's <laughs> giving you a ticket and all this sort of stuff and um to bring up here but awful memory but anyway we, we nearly got beaten up on a train oh, no. in vietnam anyway vietnam's lovely but just don't go you know don't follow someone to a train 
Anyway, how did we get into this? Anyway, this series was not involving that at all. Um, but we had been previously and we'd had a wonderful experience by the train instant. But the whole process of going back and filming a TV show was was wonderful because you kind of, I think you can go as a tourist to any of these places. But when you go with a TV show, while you do give up the opportunity to explore as freely as you do, you do get the opportunity to go in a little bit deeper into kind of, you know, family life or, yeah. you know, into particular producers who, who make something special. So that is the advantage of making a TV show. And the uh, Follow Donald of Vietnam was wonderful. We ended up in Sapa in the north of Thailand and cooked. They they had a suckling pig and he, mm. they cooked they, this whole meal with this kind of tribal family. And we had the most incredible experience and we were drinking pig's blood and all sorts of crazy, crazy, crazy things. But, you know, I think that's the beauty of these sorts of shows is that having had the opportunity to go to these places and, and really experience different aspects of them is, has been absolutely lovely. Um, but Donald's uh, Follow Donald to Vietnam was was definitely a, a highlight for sure. Yeah, it sounds incredible. And you are a big fan of Southeast Asian food. Like you can, oh. Yeah, you can really see it in your dishes. What is it about that style of cooking that you love so much? I think it's the the freshness of it, you know, and and I, I've always been big on on strong, bold flavors. I mean, you'll see that in in the new book, Meals and Minutes, and even any of the other previous books. Like, I just love that you can take something like a spice paste, or you can take, you know, chili, ginger, and garlic, and you just, uh, you know, I think growing up with traditional Irish foods, you know, it's it's very, it's it's not. It's it's plain to an extent, you know, and it's it's all about the quality of the ingredients and, you know, very kind of simple flavors. So I think I was always, I suppose, being in love with these South East Asian flavors. It's all about those big kind of booming, strong flavors like the spice of chili. And even I'm obsessed with Szechuan flavors at the moment because it's this completely different spice. You know, it's a it's a numbing spice. And we have a wonderful place, uh, uh, Chengdu Taste, which is close to us in Los Angeles. And they're experts at, at the Szechuan style of food. And I, I think it's that side of things that that draws me to kind of other cultures' food in, in that sense. But Southeast Asia in particular, I love Thai food. We've spent a lot of time in Thailand and that combination of salty, sticky, sweet and, and you know, spicy. It's that kind of wrap around your face um, hit of flavour that you just get from from that cuisine. And that's why I'm drawn to it. Yeah. yeah. And it's also, it's quite big impact for minimal effort this is it, it. Yeah, yeah yeah and it's all you know in lots of cases like a tom yum uh i was going to say tom yum soup but a, or a somtum salad um you know it's just a handful of ingredients bashed in a pestle and mortar and you know it's fresh it's vibrant and it hasn't taken too much time yeah you do have to locate a, a you know a lovely green papaya but once you've got that it's very easy to throw <laughs> that's half the battle yeah right we're on to the fourth desert island dish what is your favourite sandwich? That is a hard one um, because I, I think I would have grown up I, with a, tradi- a good old bacon sarnie and that was, uh, I would actually in Ireland we call it a sambo. Okay. <laughs> a I bacon like sambo is what I grew up with. <laughs> and um, that, I mean, that was my, I think if I was ever sick, which is totally not the, the thing you should have eaten if you're sick, but my mom would, it was like comfort food. And, you know, my mom would make a beautiful Irish bacon sandwich and it was just with loads of butter. With soda bread? Batch bread, the only, Oh no, soda no. bread saved for something. Okay, sorry. Sure. Yeah, okay. I, soda bread with the bacon is, you know, it's too crumbly. So okay. I think you want something, you want like a real, real proper batch white bread and, you know, no, no messing, no nonsense. Um, You know, I think that was what my favourite sandwich was growing up. To ketchup or not to ketchup? Oh, not ketchup. Oh, right. No, okay. just butter. Oh, Come right. on. Okay. Come on. Don't mess, it. Don't mess around with it. But actually, I, since then, um, 
there's a great cafe in Dublin called the Pepper Pot Cafe and they do uh, what I think is possibly my new more sophisticated version of my favourite sandwich which is a, a roast pear cheddar and uh, and bacon sandwich and they they make their own beautiful batch bread and so that kind of is like I feel like I can get away with it. Yeah, it's a grown up version. It's a grown up yeah. version. Yeah. <laughs> There's a time and a place for both though. Exactly, exactly. So your new book Meals and Minutes is based largely on the fact that you are a new dad with a nine month old and it's something that I think women get asked about a lot in interviews, but not so much with men. So I wanted to ask, how are you finding it with juggling your new baby, working for yourself? Because you work with your wife, don't you? Yes. Well, I did up until uh, nine months ago. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and um, she's she's now kind of a full-time mum with uh, with Noah. And um, I've lost my right-hand lady to because to, we, we, we've literally done it for the last 10 years we've been working together. So that's um, so cool. Well, I saw um, a Facebook Live that you did the other day and she was being very handy on yeah. the cameras. So. Yeah, she's great. I mean, and she still obviously steps in when, when, when it's needed. But um, yeah, I think, I think for, for, I mean, having a child is just, it's unbelievably game changing in the sense of like your time is completely taken away from you. And, and it's, you know, it's a struggle because I mean, we've spent a long time building the career and all that side of things. And, you know, I think you want, you have to maintain that, but you also want to be, a, you want to be there for your child. And I think it's, I think it's a struggle that most people, yeah. most people go through. But it, has it been quite eye-opening? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh my goodness. It's been <laughs> unbelievable. Like the last nine months, I think like, I feel like we're just, co- and I'm sure there's parents who'll listen to this and go, okay, you're just getting started. But I feel like we've just come through like those first nine months of like coming through a cloud and like we can kind of, we've got a bit of a routine to it. It'll change, I know, but at the same time, you kind of, you've got a sense of what it is. Whereas like when it first happens, when he first arrived, like it's carnage. It's absolute chaos. And you also, you handed in your book manuscript just before he was born? No, oh, just no, after. it would have been much better if I'd handed it in before he was born. But the minute, I think I was still... I, the aim was to hand it in in February and I think they were still asking me for things through May and it's only out in September. So, I mean, it's been, it's been a lot longer, um, of a book process because, because we've been trying to parent as well as it, but yeah. it's, you know what? It's, it's, it's a good challenge and it's, it's, uh, it puts you under pressure in a good way. And, and actually having that little bit of extra time has allowed me to kind of input a bit more into it because I had written the majority of the recipes before he was born. Okay. And now that we've been kind of utilizing them a lot more when he's around, is that like there are there's been changes and touches and tweaks to it so what you've got now in terms of a book is something that is definitely inspired by and influenced by his presence for sure and and I think for a lot of parents growing up or for with, with young kids you know having a playbook and that my aim with the book was to create 90 dinner recipes that you can really make from scratch in less than 15 minutes and and I think and hopefully I've delivered in that sense because it, it, from our point of view it, I always think somewhat selfishly in terms of what you know well, yeah. how I'm how I'm writing recipes and you know this is a, in as much as meals and minutes is a very functional book for a lot of people in various different guises even if you don't have children for us it was a very functional uh, cookbook to write at this particular time but that's what people want isn't it you want recipes that the person writing the recipes is actually using themselves this and it's it. sort of coming from experience yeah totally that's and, what and I think want. we've had you know I, I've written one or two that I, I would see more as kind of 
coffee table cookbooks. Of course, you don't write them as that, but, you know, they become like the, the my last book was very, you know, there was a lot of food, um, food and travel and lifestyle photos. Whereas this one is one that I, I feel will probably sit in, you know, on the kitchen counter leafed through. And yeah. even last night we were at a, at a book event and I had this, uh, this lovely lady called Colette who's been followed, who's literally bought every book since day one and watches all the TV shows. And she brought all her books and they were all like, you know, brown taped up the, on the spine and all this sort of stuff. What Love Colette. That is the best thing, you <laughs> yeah. know. And that for me, like as a food writer, is the highlight of of you know of doing the job because you know. And she told me she has four kids, and she every one of them has eaten a Donald Skeen recipe. And like for me, that is just the highlight. It really is, you know, the the ultimate achievement of of writing a cookbook. Yeah, that's what it's all about. Yeah. She even wrote, you know, like she was marking them kind of practically out of ten in the oh. book. So I, <laughs> I was one one was excellent and one was just good. Oh God, that's and one a bit stressful. Really good. Yeah, I know. So I was reading them through, and I was very 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 interested. The fifth desert island dish. What's the dish you eat the most often? I, I would love to tell you it was something terribly interesting or terribly uh, healthy, but it's pasta is my go-to. You yeah. know, and I, I, you know, I, I, I tend to kind of cook quite balanced meals, and we do a lot of like meat and veg or or just veggie kind of like dals and things like that. But I would say I, the ones I get the most enjoyment in cooking are are our pasta recipes. Yeah. You know, we all that time we spent in Italy. You just see the simplicity of it. And, you know, I think some people kind of uh, poo-poo pasta recipe. Poo-poo pasta. Uh, yes, they do that from time to time. Oh, no, I've, I've set her off. Have you not, has no one said poo-poo pasta on your, on your podcast yet? Well, I mean, that's a dish we're yet to try. But, I'm um... sure it's a YouTube uh, sens- viral sensation in the making. But anyway. A lot of people kind of look down their nose on, on pasta dishes, but they are the ultimate fast food, you know. And I love the idea that you can, you know, in the in the twelve minutes it takes to cook pasta, you can be making a really quick and vibrant sauce. And and you know, a, a lot of the recipes kind of take inspiration from that ideology of of pasta recipes in in the book. There's not, you know, there's a handful of pasta recipes in there, but that idea that you know you can. You can pop a chicken breast onto fry. And in that time, what else can you be doing to kind of bring the meal together and, you know, create something that's quick and easy? But for me, um, pasta recipes are my go-to. I mean, there's a, there's a gnocchi recipe in the book that I cook all the time at the moment, which is, which is garlic and rosemary pan fried uh, chicken breast that you make. So you pan fry the chicken, you tumble in a whole load of cherry tomatoes just halved and you cook them out alongside the chicken. So you get this kind of like almost speedy sauce. You boil up some gnocchi, which takes three minutes. I pop them straight in for, like with a, with a spider drainer straight into the, into the dish, into the one pan and shake it all together. And you have the most gorgeous comfort food dinner in literally under about 15 minutes, probably less. So, I mean, it's, it's dishes like that that I always come back to. But I mean, this, I mean, actually meals and minutes while, you know, I always try and write quite a few, quite a, quite a lot of new recipes. Um, there are ones in there that I've come back to time and time again. And, and Irish stew, I mean, there's, there's a whole section in the book of, you know, quick prep, slow cook. And while this is a book about meals and minutes, it's at that ideology of like, what can you do in 10 minutes that yeah. will sit on a hob or get, get put into an oven? It's the hands on time that counts exactly exactly yeah. but no i think you know i think those pasta recipes are probably my go-to and so i'm always the person who if i see fancy gnocchi or i see fancy kind of expensive looking pasta i always do pick those up because you know they're what they're like two or three euro extra two or three pounds extra and you know you'll i don't even know if that's the cost of them but anyway they'll sit in your store cupboard and like when you are in a fix and or in a jam you know that really nice 
tin of tomatoes can be transformed into something gorgeous with chili flakes and a bit of smoked pancetta or, you know, that, that side of things. It's just, it's having things to hand. And, you know, there's a whole section in Meals and Minutes about, you know, the sorts of things you can prep in advance, the things that you can steal from your store cupboard to make up a quick meal. And I think that more and more that is the way we cook at home. Definitely. So you seem to very much enjoy a challenge and you've done so many things. You've transitioned from blogger to cook to businessman. But I wondered, in all the things you've done, have you done anything that perhaps hasn't gone to plan? Because it's possibly from the mini or even the big failures that we learn the most or... Has it all been quite smooth sailing? Oh my God, everything. Oh. <laughs> everything is in, like, everything is in flux all the time. You know, you're always, I mean, if you work for yourself, you're always, uh, you know, having to push things along. So, I mean, I think you, if you don't try, and you, I think if you have that pressure on yourself that you you have to succeed or fail. I think in terms of like, I never see anything as a failure. I think yeah. always, you know, we, we've tried so many things in, over the course of like 10 years in this world. And, you know, there's, uh, for, at one point I presented a TV show in Swedish. At one point we had a food magazine that, you know, I threw everything at and of course didn't succeed because it was, it was too high end and it was too, too much work. And, you know, there, there's lots of things, but like in the same sense, I got to meet all these fantastic Irish food producers. And on the same sense with the Swedish thing, you know, I, I really improved my Swedish and, yeah. <laughs> you know, got a foothold with, you know, a whole other, um, a whole other marketplace. But none of them are failures. Like yeah. none of them are things like they're, they're life experience. And I think, you know, I think there's early on in a career and certainly when you're in your 20s, you feel like you're you're pushing towards that big moment where actually the realization is that everything's the big moment. This We are in the big moment right now. And yeah, I, so I hate true. to sound very L.A. and philosophical about it. But, you know, I think when you kind of lose that sense of there being success and failure and you kind of dive a little deeper into, you know, are you happy right now? And, you know, is this thing making are you enjoying this thing right now? Yeah. I think that's where, you know, you, you learn from your, your failures, you learn from your successes, you learn from all those different aspects of, of what are your life experience. And yeah, but no, I, I think they're, they're brilliant. And I think you need, you, if you don't have failure, you don't have, you know, you don't have life. Well, that's true. And, you know, it's all about the journey, not the destination. This is this. I love it. I love it. No, but I, I think, you know, even looking back at that, that food, we had a fantastic, it was, uh, it was called, Feast magazine and we it was it was a really great pro- passion project and we threw everything at it but of course uh, there was no business plan there was I was doing it because it was something that I was passionate about I got to travel the the Irish countryside and meet fantastic producers and and in in essence it then subsequently went on to become a TV show so everything leads on to things so yeah, nothing wasted nothing's wasted and I think yeah. everything those those experiences always lead to something else yeah that's so yeah. true what a good way of thinking about things uh, it's, you have to package it up some way don't you. <laughs> <laughs> the sixth desert island dish what's your go-to dinner party dish this is always in flux because it's always one of i mean it's like picking your favorite child there's yeah, always something it's hard but i do i mean the, my go-to at the moment because we live in la so there's always um i think there's, there's a we barbecue a lot more than i ever would at home and in ireland you know barbecue in ireland as i'm sure is here is that you know you're used to having an umbrella beside yeah. you as you barbecue so um barbecue in la is is a little different because you can kind of actually plan for it and you can you know do it do you know prep in advance knowing that you're going to actually get to cook on it now in saying that my my dad is a passionate barbecue uh, lover who who goes out in the middle of the winter and still barbecues so you know even even in whatever weather it is it's still a great way to cook but my go-to is a uh, barbecue lamb 
I absolutely love shoulder of lamb barbecued is spectacular and you can do so many I mean, flavor variations on that I mean garlic and rosemary is a classic but uh, you know and it's one I do uh, quite a lot but more recently I, I slather it in harissa paste mm-hmm. and put it on the barbecue and then I make with whatever leftover harissa I have I loosen it with a little touch of orange juice and it's that orange harissa like dipping with with barbecue smoky lamb is the most gorgeous thing the other one I do quite a lot because uh, I love Asian food, as you well know, but it's soy ginger steaks. And um, you can get these gorgeous kind of skirt steaks, which cook really quickly in, in L.A. They, it's a cut of meat called beef flaps. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's what I, I pick up in L.A. I'm really sorry, but that's what they're called in, in, um, in, in America. Interesting. It, yes. In the supermarket I buy, that's that's why, what they're called. So I marinate them with a little bit of soy sauce, ginger and garlic, and <laughs> she's still cracking up. <laughs> Um, anyway once they're marinated they taste delicious on the barbecue literally two or three minutes either side they're simple to make and i serve them with a with a ginger or with a with a scallion and green pepper salad and they're just gorgeous you know and what i love about this sort of barbecue vibe is that i do a whole load of different plates and bring them to the table and so you know that's they're my meats and then i have like some gorgeous veggies you know like some char grilled broccolini or tender stem broccoli and you you toss it with like a chili vinaigrette. And it's just little plates of things that people can tuck into. Interesting sauces. That they're my kind of go-to dinner party dishes. And then desserts, I my blueberry and white chocolate um cheesecake is one that I always make. It's always a crowd pleaser. Um chocolate lava cake, something you can have mm. made up. It's kind of in the molten chocolate uh, pudding vein of things that but you can sit in the fridge and literally you take it out just before you've finished your dinner. Also, that's always a winner because they're actually really easy, but people are so impressed. So impressed. Yeah, which well, is the key to a dinner yeah. party, isn't it? I, I, you have to, like you have to have something that people are gonna have a wow moment. Oh yeah. And Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah. Always always good. Um and then and, you know, things like like an orange polenta cake is something that I always make. So, you know, I always do like having, you know, one or two things that you can serve up. And and again, like that idea of bringing a few things to the table is quite nice as well. If you have Yum. the time. Yum. Shouldn't be fuss. There no. should be no fuss. So we have a cookbook corner on Desert Island Dishes. Yep. And I wondered, what is your favourite all-time cookbook? Ooh, um... I have so many. And actually, the my biggest um, regret of being in LA is that we have all my cookbooks are back in Ireland. And <gasps> oh, I did, no. We didn't bring them over. So uh, when I come home, I always try and mark a little mo- p- part of time that I can spend in my room, where my in my mother and father's <laughs> house, where we've put plonked like over 250, <gasps> 300 cookbooks. And I just spend the afternoon just devouring through some of my favorites. Oh, and there's nothing better. Yeah. But the one book I did bring with me, because I, you know, I took one or two that were really close to my heart. And, um, Nigel Slater's Kitchen Diaries is just one I dip in and out of hit that and eat. Cause they're two, I mean, Nigel is just my hero. And, um, as a food writer, he, his simplicity, his simplicity of, of recipes is what I find so attractive. And, you know, I think eat is a lovely example of, you know, even meals and minutes, you know, is very much in that vein of, you know, things that taste really good that don't take too much time and that you can bring together very quickly i think he's he's been doing that since i first started watching him on tv or re- before i even read read nigel's books i was always obsessed when he'd you know he'd appear on tv and get excited about you know cooking chicken to put in a baguette you know and be you know and being passionate about that and and really um being unapologetic about that and i think you know we should be unapologetic about those you know the bacon sambos Definitely. and you know the the sorts of things that taste bloody good and we you know you don't need a mousse yeah. you don't need you know a jus 
it needs to be something that you know gives you satisfaction and gives you comfort and and i think that's why i'm drawn to his writing because i think that's at the core of what he does it's it's always looking for those those brilliant kind of tastes beyond the fuss i suppose yeah. and kitchen diaries is another one that you know it it gives you a lovely sense of of time and and place and i think that's what's lovely about that book and why i, do, I dip into it as regularly as i do Excellent choice. Thank you. <laughs> Dona, we're on to the seventh and final Desert Island dish. And that's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the Desert Island. I feel I've answered these terribly because I am not giving you specific dishes. But this, again, is not a specific dish, but it's more of an experience. And, that's and, fine. It, and I think, you know, my wife, is Sophie, is Swedish. And um, some of our best and most memorable meals come around Swedish summertime. And one of our favorite meals to have is the is the Kreftkiva, which is a crayfish party and the whole family comes together and platters of prawns and crayfish and you know um they have these these beautiful big kind of uh, they're, they're langoustines basically but they call them crayfish and just platters of seafood and I think why I love that feat as a feast is because, you know, it's, it's not just the seafood, but it's also like the Vestabotanust pie, which is this kind of, kind of like a quiche kind of thing that they have and bread and they have all these different kind of dill mayos and you know, all these great elements. And it always reminds me one of the first jobs I had in a kitchen, um, was in this Swedish restaurant on the west coast of, of Sweden. Both myself and Sophie worked there. She was the waitress and I was in the kitchen. And we cook through a lot. One thing about traditional Swedish food is that it, while it might be Christmas food, it also appears at Easter and it also appears <laughs> okay. at, in the summer. <laughs> so as much as you might think it's lovely and traditionally Christmas, it actually, it, it kind of reappears throughout the year. But anyway, it, it's, it's lovely. But I think those sorts of dishes are, are the ones that we have such strong memories with. And, you know, the people that we would share with our, our family and friends yeah, and, I think that- and that lovely sunset, Swedish sunset with the Poseidon Lake. It's just idyllic and yeah, absolutely gorgeous. It'd be a perfect final meal. Yeah. Thank you so much, Donal. Those Thank were your Desert me. Island dishes. <laughs> so there we are. Another delicious day of Desert Island dishes. I love that we got two versions of the bacon sandwich and both sounded delicious. I wonder whether maybe you fall into one of two camps, either the posh bacon sandwich or the cheap and cheerful. What do you reckon? For loads of recipes and tips and tricks, come to the website www.desertislanddishes.co and you'll find the very delicious recipe that I've created inspired by Donal's choice of Desert Island dishes. Of course, you can also find me on Instagram at Margie Nomura. And thank you so much for listening. I'll see you very soon. Bye.